Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the 14th episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. John Goldstein co-founded Imprint Capital back in 2007, when ESG was still a new acronym on Wall Street. In 2015, Imprint Capital was acquired by Goldman Sachs. Then in 2019, Goldman promoted John to the position of Global Head of the Sustainable Investing Practice, which advises institutional clients around the world on how to best achieve ESG objectives. In today's interview, we'll discuss what John calls impact investing, engaging directly with the industries that pose risks to the environment, using investment capital to influence and change their behavior. My interview with Goldman Sachs ESG chief John Goldstein is coming up next. And now with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. John, thanks so much for joining me on Smarter Markets. It's really a pleasure to get you on the program. I have been looking forward to this interview because when I had Peter Fusaro on the show, we talked a bit about the difference between what I call avoidance ESG, which is just people who don't invest in things that might be bad, versus actually engaging and using the capital under management to truly make the world a better place. Now, you must be doing something right because you co-founded Imprint Capital back in 2007. You were acquired by Goldman Sachs in 2015, and then in 2019, Goldman made the decision to promote you to the firm-wide role of the head of the Sustainable Finance Group for Goldman Sachs Worldwide. So you are doing something right in terms of ESG. Let's start with the backstory, go all the way back to 2007. What made you found Imprint Capital? Tell us the story of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, Eric, first, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to, to be on the show and, and, and share this. And it was great as we as we prep for this, that the key question you had was actually really central to why Imprint Capital started back in 2007, right? I, I think the, the flippant version of how and why Imprint Capital started is that I was doing a terrible job. I was radically unsuccessful at trying to take time off. So it grown and sold a business, was trying to take some time. And what happened is in the same week in early 2007, you know, three institutions. So Google.org, the Kellogg Foundation, and a large family office all said, can we pay you to help us figure out this whole mission investing thing? That was about the the precision of, of, of language that was used back then for what was a broad thrust really around the question you asked, which is, you know, negative screen exclusionary strategies have a very long storied past. We traced, you know, back to the Quakers. But there's this question emerging is, can this be about more than what we don't do? Can this be about what we do? And I think looking at those three institutions asking that question, what I did is I trotted out the smartest person I knew on the topic at the time. Taylor Jordan at the time was chief investment officer of the Rudolf Steiner Foundation. And he had quietly and methodically built a portfolio, multi-asset, multi-manager, really trying to answer that question. Can I build a real portfolio that's focused not on what I'm not doing, but what I am doing? And after walking through what he'd learned with those three initial clients, he said, well, why don't we just do this together? And the I became a we, and that's really the genesis of Imprint Capital. And in those early conversations, when we were trying to describe what it is that we're really trying to do, that distinction you made was really central. You know, what we did is we characterized what had happened to date largely as values-based investing. You know, sleeping at night, feeling money is aligned with what you care about. But this was really, and, and this is where Taylor started describing this, is impact investing, a term that took, a, took on a whole lot more popularity and growth than I think anyone had anticipated at the time. But to really make that distinction, right, this is about the impact that we are having, not what we're avoiding. And so, I mean, that's really where Imprint Capital 
came from. And I think, you know, you, you, you could say doing something right, or I might say doing a spectacularly good job of being in the right place at the right time. But from those early initial clients, you know, we got to, to some degree, be, be the, the one-eyed person in the land of the blind, right? A topic of emerging interest where we got to work with some great institutions to develop our, our knowledge, our learning. Uh, that allowed us to build a team to really lean into this question fundamentally. It's, is there a there there? right? Can this be done? And I think we were determined to really figure out, you know, if there's a there there, we most certainly didn't want to generate what we talked about as a false negative, right? This should either work or not on its merits from an impact perspective or from an investment perspective. And we need real data. And you only get real data with real execution. If you build a real investment team, partner with great clients and really put that question to the test. John, I love that phrase, impact investing. But hang on a second, that could mean a lot of different things. It it, it could mean rewarding the good guys. It could mean punishing the bad guys. What exactly does that look like? What, What is the portfolio construction strategy? What do you try to accomplish in order to achieve impact investing? Yeah, and it's funny. I'm going to give a slightly backwards answer to it of really how we realized our initial answer lacked precision and how we got a lot sharper, which is, you know, as I said, one of our early clients was the Kellogg Foundation, you know, great leader, getting out very early in the space, committing money from their endowment to really test this thesis. But we got to the investment committee, and this is in 2008, with an investment around education central focus for them. And they said, you know, this looks interesting from a financial perspective, interesting from an impact perspective, but, but why this one? Like, why this out of all the investments? And then let us really step back and think, you know, what are we doing here and how do we do it well? And, and what really emerged is at the end of the day to have an impact, you need a thesis, right? And that thesis needs to have two components. Number one, what's the financial thesis? Why is this going to make money? How does this tap into drivers of growth and return? And number two, why do you think this is a good thing, right? What does it do? What does that result in? And what makes us think that's good? And finally, how are those two things related to each other or not? Because at the end of the day, if those are aligned, if the way you make money is the way you do good, that means you're more likely to be happy all around if the investment succeeds. If those are at tension, it may be problematic. And so what really emerges at the end of the day, and and this is in some ways going to sound delightfully prosaic, but impact investing is investing. And investing takes a lot of research, a lot of work, a lot of thoughtfulness, and a lot of care. And this is by no means any different. And so what we realize is to do this, you have to step one, do your homework, right? And so we started this discipline of market scanning, go deep into these markets. And so in the case of education, you know, we built a database of 1,400 companies, mapped the market into 30 different segments, looking at different stages, approaches, business models, and just what's out there. From there, we narrowed it down to where do we see a financial thesis, areas of growth, profitability, uh, ways we can make money, things that are mature enough to be de-risked, but not so mature that they're picked over and bid up, and how do those drive social value or not. From there, we honed in on our thesis, and we said, okay, this is the backdrop around which to make and manage good investments. Because A, we know what we're looking for, right? We know that thesis. We know where we want to put capital. B, once we know that, we know enough to find the right partner, the right way to invest, which could be in a company. It could be through a fund manager. It could be in a variety of different ways. Then we know enough to do our diligence, right? Once we've honed in on the space and the partner, you know enough about the sector in your thesis to evaluate the company from a basis of knowledge. Because one of the challenges, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a generalist investing in very specific sectors, there's always an information asymmetry. And we found you had to overcome that information asymmetry. You had to do your homework and you had to have your own thesis. How am I going to make money? How am I doing good? And how does that compare to what an investment is offering? And that weaves into diligence, into your agreement, and into managing that investment once you've made it. So back to your question of really, how do you do this? Which is step one is do your homework. Understand where you're investing. What are the drivers of return and impact? Step two is have a thesis. Where do you see those interesting moments when those things are aligned? And three, roll up your sleeves and do the work. Once you have your thesis, you know what you're looking for. You hopefully are better at knowing that you found it when you find it, and you're better at managing it for success over time. And so that at heart is what it looks like. Now, of course, it plays out differently in different sectors, in different asset class, in different tools, from public equities to private equity, and you name it. But really at heart, that's what we found that it's really all about, is those three key steps. 
Talk to me a little bit about the segregation or the the approach that you take in terms of breaking up these portfolios, because capital allocators tend to think in terms of buckets that they put capital into, you know. So I could imagine there's an ESG fund or an ESG portfolio, and it contains a combination of the, the E's, the environmental investments and the socially responsible investments, or maybe also in the same portfolio, or, or wait a minute, maybe it's different. Maybe there's an E portfolio and an S portfolio portfolio and a G portfolio that are three separate buckets so that the capital allocator can decide how much they want to put into each one. How, how do you typically break this up? How do you think about the the separate topics of environmental, socially responsible, and responsible corporate governance? Yeah. I mean, for us, you know, I, I like to say we want to get to a post-acronym world, right? Which is one of the things I would say ESG has done is as a label, as a discipline, it's raised awareness, interest, and engagement. But it's also confused a lot of people because once you give something separate nomenclature, separate jargon, people start asking, is this a separate bucket? Where does this go? Do I need a separate strategy? Do I need to hire different people? Should this live outside my investment process? And it's that irony. If you have large, very successful investing organizations that have very smart investors to somehow try to build a duplicative infrastructure to try to come close to replicating the experience and skill of, a, of an experienced investment team doesn't make a lot of sense. And so what we try to do is really boil it down back to that point. I'm probably, this is going to, in the word cloud from today's conversation, thesis is going to probably be the big one in the middle in large type. But I think it starts with a thesis. And so for us, ESG is not about weighting environmental versus social versus governance factors. What it is, is about understanding as our world changes, right? And we see these two massive secular themes, climate transition and inclusive growth. But why does it matter? It matters not because of E or S or G. It matters because ultimately these are drivers of risk, drivers of growth, or drivers of efficiency, right? We can really think about it. Can this give us insight or ways to manage left tail risk? Can it give us ways to tap into emerging growth opportunities? Or can it drive efficiencies that show up in margins, right? Losses, growing the top line or margins. So it's getting to that next level. And so which of those matter? Well, it's which ones are going to affect those three financial levers. There has to be an economic transmission mechanism that means that these things matter. I mean, at the end of the day, the sort of economics of ESG matter a whole lot more uh, than the acronyms of ESG. So you guys at Imprint Capital were advising family offices and other institutions. Let's fast forward to 2015. Something happens. You hit Goldman Sachs radar screen. They want to acquire you. What brought that about? How did it go down? Yeah, it was a very funny uh, evolving path that certainly none of us imagined back when we started Imprint in 07. And even it was it was interesting. I was doing a panel at the UN and a, and a client was doing it with me. And, and this was right after the announcement of the acquisition in 2015. And she reached over, kind of covered up the mic and said, you know, had I seen that announcement, you know, 12 months ago, I would have assumed it was in the onion. Right. And so, so what happened? Right. So from 2007, our little two person company starting to grow into still a very little 15 person company. But what started to happen is these questions, which started initially as a part of people's portfolio or in some subsectors started to become about all of people's portfolios and wider swaths of, of investors, not just family offices, faith-based institutions and foundations, but pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, the largest family offices in the world, insurance companies. And so those questions were getting to the central part of these organizations, their CIO, not their head of sustainability, and, and larger institutions. And so that started showing up with our, our, our phone started ringing with financial institutions calling and asking for help. Right? And so we literally started a service called our help desk, where financial institutions could get us to both help inform their teams as they built out their approaches and leverage their resources, but also fill gaps that they weren't necessarily going to staff up on their own. And so we really started having a financial institutions business of this help desk starting in about 2013. And that was the first change. And then we met Goldman Sachs actually through work we did with the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And uh, you know, as we started to get to know them, the chair and their investment committee is a partner at Goldman Sachs named Hugh Lawson. And um, after a process where they narrowed down and found that they thought we'd be a good partner. You know, Hugh called and he said, you know, this is a day job question for me at Goldman. I'd love to get to know you. And the conversation felt like every other conversation with a financial institution at first, right? You know, how would a firm like ours work with a firm like yours? Can you send me a draft contract? Can you meet some people? All those things. And, you know, we did one, we were asked to do one last teaching. They said Goldman Sachs is very consensus driven. So one, do, do one last teaching, don't mess up and we'll sign your contract. 
And so did that last teach-in, which with what the benefit of hindsight was a suspiciously full room of suspiciously senior people up on the the, the 41st floor uh, at, at 200 West Street and left feeling it was a great meeting. I mean, you know, they asked great engaged questions. I, I got about 30 seconds in the conversation. They asked me about greenwashing and green bonds. I said, well, great question. I'm curious as to why that's, that's coming right off the bat. And they said, look, someone tried to sell us a quote unquote green bond that was for a parking garage. And it was green because it had two plugs for EVs. So, you know, good two hour engaged conversation with a bunch of really smart people asking great questions, left feeling good. We have a new client. And uh, Hugh called back a couple weeks later and, you know, said the meeting went well, it was well received, but we had this wacky idea and wonder what you might think about it. But what if we were to buy you? And uh, this was, you know, me and my sweatpants having my morning cup of coffee around my kitchen table. And so I fortunately uh, avoided doing a spit take, but I, I, I paused for half a beat and I said, well, I'd love to hear more about your thinking. And, and he said, it's not actually very complicated. This is now important which means we need to be excellent at it. And we're good. We've got lots of different pockets of activity, but we're not going to get from good to excellent by just hiring a few people or telling the existing team to work harder. We need to have a critical mass of people with expertise and focus to really do this do this justice if it is imp- as important as we think it is. And so, John, I can imagine for you, Taylor, and the team, you do work you love, you're good at, it's important, but you're running a small business which means you got a lot of mouths to feed and you got to sell a lot of work and you got to do that work and your infrastructure is probably a little squeaky. And so the chance to just, number one, just focus on the work. Number two, get more resources to do it better. And number three, find ways to make it accessible and useful where more people might be interesting. And, and, you know, we had to go through a process of step one, are we open to that conversation? Step two, were we interested in, in entertaining other offers? And step three, at the end of the day, what, what, what do we do? And I think for, for number one, you know, the more we thought about it, it was a proposition certainly worth exploring. Number two, you know, we'd had great relationships with a range of institutions, but really came to the conclusion that if we were going to partner with an institution, that Goldman was the one that would make sense. And so then we really narrowed it down to do we grow on our own or do we do it in partnership with Goldman Sachs? And Taylor and I did it one night and we sort of stepped back. We said, why do we start this business? At the end of the day, we started really for those core things, which is we want to move more money impactfully. We want to do it well. So we're creating proof points and models of success, not cautionary tales, because, man, do people remember those cautionary tales for a long time. And and number three, we wanted to make it accessible to more people. And we realized we were probably kidding ourselves if we thought we could come close to the impact on our own that we could in partnership with, with Goldman Sachs. And ironically, the reason we chose to get acquired was really for our mission. It was for our purpose. And the reasons to stay on our own weren't about mission. They weren't about purpose. They're about control, maybe a little pride, maybe a little ego. And so, you know, we, we made the decision to, to join the firm back in, uh, in 2015. Now, that was 2015. And at that point, you're acquired. And it's basically, look, keep running your company. We own you now, which brings, obviously, some pedigree of the name of Goldman Sachs. It helps you sell your product. But you're still running your own shop there. Something happened between 2015 and 2019 where all of a sudden they're talking about a firm-wide leadership role where you're heading up sustainability for Goldman Sachs on whole, which means Goldman Sachs has obviously recognized something they didn't know before, which is they needed to have a head of sustainable investing. This is something, as you say, that nobody, you know, 15 years ago, what, is that in the onion? Are you joking? Sustainable, you know, would anybody invest in that? Now, all of a sudden, there's a firm-wide head of it at Goldman Sachs. What was the thinking and how does it match what's going on elsewhere in the industry between 2015 and 2019, where this goes from what sounds to me like an acquisition, which was probably good for you guys, but not all that strategic of an acquisition for Goldman Sachs, to the point where suddenly you're being asked to lead up a whole function within the company? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a pretty remarkable journey. And it's interesting looking back and, and trying to think about the signposts, right? So as you said, look, step one was the recognition this was important to one division of the firm and to really figure out how to grow that business. Now, I, I would say the approach that Goldman took to it was one that made a lot of sense to me, but we always had to explain to a lot of the rest of the imprinters because the approach they took was not to say, these are your targets or your objectives. It was really to say, let's build a great business, right? Let's do this properly. Realizing at that point in 2015, no one knew exactly what great would look like. And I think that 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 entrepreneurial space to do justice to the issue and really figure out what does that look like? Because at the end of the day, we really did three things, right? So number one, how we more deeply integrate this. And this is with a whole lot of other great people within the division, right? How do we really integrate this into the regular way investing? 
right? For our folks buying stocks, buying bonds, putting together portfolios, because, you know, whether people think they care about ESG or not, everyone cares about risk adjusted returns, right? And understanding how to integrate these to drive risk adjusted returns is relevant for all portfolios and all clients. So step one is a deeply integrative process just to help build up the skill set within the day-to-day investing. Number two was really to have this R&D function, go out and do more you know, deeper, more tailored work, often in partnership with clients to go explore what does it look like to build a large private impact portfolio targeting the sustainable development goals for European pension fund? What does it look like to build a large you know, climate portfolio tilted to equity-like upside growth if climate transition accelerates for a private client? What does it look like to help a pension fund decarbonize their equities portfolio? What does it look like to help a corporate advance their diversity goals with a money market fund that buys securities from women, minority, and and veteran-owned broker-dealers? So this idea of having an R&D agenda to go learn new things, solve new problems, and build the toolkit, number two. And and number three is really being a counsel for clients. Clients who are engaged and interested, but sometimes confused, sometimes overwhelmed with the language, with the choices, and to really you know, provide that strategic advice and counsel that leveraged our breadth. And leveraging breadth is another really important topic here, because one of the issues you have here is what a lot of people want is not necessarily a product. What they need is help. And that help needs to have visibility across what do peer institutions globally look like and do? What does best practice look like? What does not quite best practice look like? What can I do across asset classes? You know, ultimately, as I'm thinking about entry points, I need to be able to talk about, you know, public markets, equities and bonds all the way to private assets. And how do I think about it from a top level governance perspective with my board, and my stakeholders, all the way down to implementation? And what we found is being able to cover that whole, whole landscape was disproportionately useful to clients who, who didn't want to be pitched on a fund or a product. They wanted help navigating this and be able to take that breadth, what Goldman does, but allocating to external managers, public to private was really helpful. So the three key parts of that business were integrating ESG into the regular way investing, creating new, more tailored products, but then also really giving a broad advisory service to clients. And so what we found, and, and I think how this changed is number one, that worked. Investing in this, you know, through in that case through the acquisition, upping our resources, upping our focus, and taking this approach that leveraged our breadth was powerful within the investment management division. I mean, at acquisition, that was about a combined three billion dollar business. You know, to, as we got to the end of last year, it, it crossed eighty billion dollars. Right. So I think one thing people noticed is if you invest resources, you take the right approach. It seems to work pretty well. Number two. I think what they saw is the demand, the interest, the appetite was growing across all of our clients and across all of our businesses. And so if you step back and look at those two things, right, we think we have a recipe that we've tried out, right? We've had a test kitchen within one division and it seems to have worked pretty well. And we see this growing need and demand globally across all of our businesses. You put those two things together, that really culminated in what I do now, which is I had the sustainable finance group. And that really came out of about six months of conversations, right? Which is, I think, starting with those two observations, one, you know, the world seems to be moving in this direction, demand, interest, and engagement is growing quickly. And number two, we think we've learned something from what's happened in the investment management division over the last four years, but what should we do? And I think we looked at all kinds of different approaches. We looked at things tied to external frameworks. We looked at all the different terms and jargon and acronyms. And eventually we realized for us, right, sitting at the center of markets, we needed to take a research and market-driven approach. And what really crystallized was this view that there are these two secular drivers that we saw, saw as growing and significant themes in the external environment, climate transition and inclusive growth. And underlying that, we found nine sub-growth themes that interestingly enough harkened back. You know, remember earlier I talked about this market scanning, this doing these deep sector dives. Well, the nine themes that emerged were actually the nine themes that Imprint had been doing deep sector dives in as we reviewed them with colleagues across the firm, tweaked it, benefited from other knowledge, but really honed in on these nine underlying growth themes. That for us, you know, back to that word I said, I use a lot, thesis. That gave this whole effort a thesis that gave it a gravitational core broadly, and that gravitational core was not on the outskirts of the business. It was actually at the core, right? At the end of the day, if you see two massive growing secular themes, they're going to affect risk, opportunity, and efficiency across clients on a global basis. That's not an initiative off to the sidelines, right? That's a core business imperative. And so that's really where our sustainable finance effort has been really grounded, that these are these core secular themes are going to be important to all of our businesses. And so, you know, really at the end of the day, I, I like to jokingly 
not so jokingly say that the mandate was go help make sure we're as good at this as we would be at anything else of this level of importance. John, let's role play this. For sake of argument, let's pretend that I am a single family office manager and have been running money for a long time. And all of a sudden, the principals in the family office, let's say we're running a billion dollars, have said, ESG is now going to be your primary mandate. You got to come up to speed on this. I think my first question to you would be, okay, if you're going to you know, consult with me on how to do this, the first thing I want to get my head around is going to be accountability and measurement. Because frankly, I've learned from years and years in this business that salesmen are usually full of crap. And I, I tend to look at things like Sortino ratios and Sharp ratios to get risk-adjusted measures of performance. Those are things you can't lie about. Well, actually, people do lie about them. But hopefully, if the auditors are doing their job, people who lie about them are getting caught lying about them. Uh, I, I tend to be the kind of guy who just wants to believe in something that can be proven. Now, all of a sudden, is we're talking about these very touchy-feely things of social responsibility. You mentioned earlier greenwashing, the practice of people taking investments that have nothing to do with green and calling them green just to tell people what they want to hear, trying to separate them from their money. I know that I'm new at this. I don't want to be the sucker who gets separated from the family office money that I'm managing. But boy, how do I tell the difference between a sales pitch and something that really is impact investing that's going to make a difference? No, look, I think this is a, a critical point. And it, it's funny, actually, back when in the early days of this, I used to laugh at questions about greenwashing because I said you'd have to have a profoundly irrational person to want to greenwash relative to how little money moves around with so much effort. But that's changed. Right. I think the, the the capital flows have gotten, you know, pretty remarkable. I mean, just to give you a, a data point, you know, in 2020, active ESG equity funds had 177 billion of net inflows. Non-ESG equity funds had net inflows of 29 billion. You know, ESG on the passive side of things, its market share of inflows has gone from 1% in 2017 to 3% in 2018. 14% in 2019 and almost 40% last year. So money is, is, is moving. Money is in motion. But to your point, how do you, how, how do you find the wheat, uh, avoid the chaff? And so a couple key steps I think we find. Number one is, is we just call it clear the underbrush. This is a topic that people tend to approach with a lot of cognitive bias. I like to say people are either too predisposed to love this or too predisposed to hate it. And uh, you know, not surprisingly, neither of those are particularly constructive approaches to take to investment. And so what we often say is step one, just take all the mental models, some of which are positive, right? Some people think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread or negative. You know, we'll often talk to people, particularly in that role you're talking about, could be at a pension fund, insurance company, family office, that will start a meeting with their shoulders kind of tight and a little bit of a furrow in their brow. And we'll say, look, what at some point did someone kind of come and waggle their finger at you and tell you how to do your job with a lot of idealism and not a lot of math and that has soured you on this and often the answer is yes right so we say look step one let's clear this out of the way let's clear the jargon let's clear the hype because by the way it's completely reasonable to get nervous when you see something that feels hyped that feels like it has a lot of enthusiasm you're not sure what the grounding is so let's throw all that out right let's get rid of the underbrush and your preconceptions step one step two back to that thesis point right have a thesis why would this matter does it matter because it has a label does it matter because it has a name not really. It matters if it gives you insight either directly into things affecting real economic performance, back to that point, risk, growth, or efficiency, or it's driving capital flows in a material way. I mean, when we talk about this and we look at these drivers, you know, often it's just looking at growth statistics. You know, more than 70% of new power generating capacity in the world last year was renewable. Right. You know, electric vehicles, which once upon a time were seen as a, a niche pursuit, you know, General Motors had an amazing Super Bowl ad and isn't going to make a control combustion engine after 2035. You know, in food, you know, 90 to 95% of the top 100 CPG brands lost market share to organic and natural competitors uh, over the last five years. So just drivers in the real economy mean that this matters. And I think to take it away from the values and to get it to value right? Economic analysis versus almost social analysis. And I think that, that, that thesis, and people have different ways they think about the thesis. For some, it's changing consumer preferences. For others, it's changing employee preferences. For others, it's B2B demand, right? You just, however you want to think about it, but have that core thesis. And then from there, once you know what you're trying to do, you can look at a portfolio and figure out how to do it. 
because the structure of your assets in your portfolio matters and finding those ways to apply it in those entry points, which for family offices, understanding where, you know, given tax implications of moving portfolios around, are there areas that you're moving already? Right. So feathering things, for example, into an annual allocation to private assets or layering it into passive instruments, you know, finding that entry point. But it really starts with clear the underbrush, have a thesis and then look to implement. Looking to implement also, number one, you know what you're looking for. But to your point about data, you know what the relevant data are. Right. You know, we, we look at things relative to conventional market benchmarks. We don't grade on a curve. We don't squint with green colored glasses. And to your point, you can use the same statistics. And I think what they generally find um, in applying to ESG is ESG is not magic. Right. Investing is hard. Beating benchmarks is hard. Beating peers is hard. But it's possible. Right. It's also not poison. I mean, once again, back to if you look, you know, last year was an interesting stress test for the field. You know, if you look at, at the field, you have 75 percent of ESG funds were in the top half and beat their benchmarks. Forty two percent were actually in the top quartile versus six percent in the bottom quartile. Twenty five out of twenty six of the major ESG passive options outperformed their non ESG counterparts. And the biggest drivers of those things were security specific. Right. It wasn't uh, an energy underweight or a tech overweight. You know, does that mean that that will persist in exactly the same fashion next year? Of course not. Right. And what you're going to find with every way we slice the performance data is it is possible to build a well-performing ESG and impact oriented portfolio, but it's hard. Right. It takes the same kind of work, you know, diligence and care as you would with any other type of portfolio. It seems to me there's an analogy here, John, which is in fixed income. It's kind of hard to figure out on your own how risky a bond is. So we have bond rating agencies. Now, needless to say, we learned in the subprime crisis that bond rating agencies are not infallible, but at least they do provide a function of giving us ratings on bonds. I've heard that there are ESG scores on companies. I don't know too much about that business and who's doling out these ESG scores. Is there anything that's reliable, that's consistent, that's standardized, that makes sense to follow? And if not, what's under development in terms of you know tools that are available to allow me to measure the goodness or badness of various different investments that I might be contemplating? Yeah, so, so I'll start with, with sort of one lens is really historical, right? Where did this start? this field in terms of data measurement and metrics, where is it and where is it going? And I think one broad framing point that I think is is really important is that, you know, I think this at the end of the day, credit ratings measure a very specific thing. What is effectively the probability of default of a specific debt security? And so there's a question of what data aggregate and what form can really tell you what about ESG? And so that, that will show up in just a second as I go through some, some of the history. But I think it's important to, to think about both the similarities, but also the differences in credit ratings. So back to the history. So stage one is, you know, people tended not to do much, not use much data. It tended to be negative exclusions, which could be sector-based or practice-based, some of which was driven more by quantitative analysis, some more qualitative. And then people started to say, I want to look at a more holistic range of factors that touch a, a wider range of companies. And so a set of actors emerged um, to provide these top-line ESG scores. And sometimes they look like a number. Sometimes they look like you know a credit rating from kind of you know triple B or triple C to triple A. And you have major providers such as MSCI, Sustainalytics, and others. There's been a lot of consolidation in the industry as a lot of the, the large data firms have made, made acquisitions. And so the next phase is people using a lot of these top top-line ESG scores for a variety of purposes, but a a top-line score. I think what's happened is this latest phase, I think people have realized both the utility, but also some of the limitations of top-line ESG scores. And some of those limitations are, are, are rooted in the fact that there's a relatively low correlation between the different providers. So the correlation between credit rating scores is generally 0.99. Between ESG providers, I think MIT had a study that put it somewhere around 0.61. Right. And so that's something that leaves some investors scratching their heads a bit. Issue number two is unpacking the model is ESG stores distill a lot of different things down into a single number. And the question is, are you gaining or are you losing insight from that consolidation? And I think that's something we see investors wrestling with. And number three is looking at the engine to produce that synthesized number. What's the nature of those inputs? And I think generally there's a question of how reliant those scores are on more formalisms around, do you have a policy? Do you make a disclosure than on real material performance data? And so what we've seen is a move to, obviously, people leverage a tremendous amount of external data from a lot of providers, 
But we've seen a growing focus on using raw performance data reported by companies or others on material elements around a company. So instead of lots of things around disclosures and policies, actual performance data, number one, and number two, performance data oriented more towards the things that are material for the companies and the sector specifically. There are frameworks to encourage corporate disclosure on that front, things like SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. IFRS on an international basis is picking us up as we think about accounting standards and global harmonization. But I think that broad historical sweep is a lot of what we're seeing is step one, people didn't do anything. Step two, into the void, step ESG scores, I think is a really important step. But step three, we see a lot of people moving beyond that really as a baseline. And you know, when I talk to large asset managers, overwhelmingly, they're creating their own systems, right? They combine their own use of raw data, the insight of their analysts, a lot of their sector specialists. I think that feels like the direction of travel is really at the end of the day, you know, I like to say we're in the ESG data adolescence that can be frustrating for everybody. Companies feel like they're asked for too many different things by too many different people. So I talked to the CFO of a company who said she'd been asked for 2,000 different ESG data points in the last 12 months. Meanwhile, investors and allocators are trying to wade through a whole lot of noise to find some signal. And, and no one's particularly happy. And the question is, how do we get to a world where we have better data on fewer things that matter more? in the hands of all market participants and in a way that will fuel next level analytics, integration with people's expertise, all of the things that I think will continue to help integrate this to the mainstream of investing. But we're, we're not out of adolescence yet, but hopefully that gives a little bit of a perspective on, on, on how that, that has evolved to date. John, so far we've been talking about what the landscape of ESG investing looks like today. Let's look forward now. What's coming, or, or perhaps a better way to say it is, in your opinion, what needs to be coming? What, what should we be creating in order to develop the industry to the point of better being able to serve the owners of capital who would like to have the industry do a better job of achieving ESG goals and the management of their money? Yeah. So Eric, I, look, I, I think in some ways it's like the development of any investing discipline, right? What makes this better is people actually doing it better. You know, I, I think back to where we started this idea of having a thesis looking into the market. The real question now is not how to do this. It's how to do this well. You know, a lot of these growth themes are now increasingly well understood. And the question is not, are they real? Are they legitimate? Are they, you know, proper places to look to make investments? It's how do I invest well? And I think that's really going to be the push on, on, on investors, on, on allocators is, you know, how do we do this well? And I think like all markets, it takes work. And like all markets, they get more efficient over time. And you have to uh, add a little something extra if you want to add value. Right. And so I, you know, it's a couple of things we'd say is look back, for example, people have gotten, you know, these growth themes right and investments wrong, either because sometimes they're too early or sometimes they're in the wrong part of the value chain. So think, for example, being an upstream solar when the Chinese suddenly began manufacturing a lot, right? You sort of have all these things people have gotten wrong over time. And now these markets are fairly well understood. And so the real question is, how do you add value in a world where this is increasingly valued and increasingly traveled? Right. And I think, you know, what we, really see is there are three things that generally can help because these markets generally go through three stages, too early, too late, and just right. And I think, you know, often there's an early phase where things are capital intensive, high risk. Um, you take a lot of money, takes a lot of time, and the failure rate is sufficiently high that it's not a good place for private capital. Eventually, stuff graduates and mainstreams, and particularly in today's environment with a lot of liquidity and very low interest rates, the cost of capital and thus the returns go down, 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 where, you know, project equity and operating renewable power assets, for example, you know, are, are call it sub 4% in some, some markets. The question is, how do you find that Goldilocks sweet spot? And I think generally we found three things that can be the recipe for that. Thing one is, is insight, right? Do the homework, do the work, and find things where you can be early enough but you have enough clarity around where the market's going to go. I'm thinking about experiences we've had, for example, helping to build uh, Renew Power in India, which is, I think, now the largest uh, renewable developer in India. That started when it was five or six people. But the clarity around the team and the market opportunity, that insight, having done the homework, let us make some bets early. Similarly, in Japan, you know, post-Fukushima saw a tremendous need and opportunity in solar. We're able to sort of use that insight to get in early enough before the cost of capital began to go down in, in that market. The other thing to do is kind of pick your spots. Earlier, you talked about silos. You talked about buckets. You know, I think one of the things we found sometimes works is to go theme first, asset class second. In this case, I'm thinking about a case where we sat down with actually a manager of 
And uh, we said, instead of showing us a fund, tell us what you actually like in the market right now. And this was a couple of years back after the rise and fall of some of the yield codes. And they said, actually, we see a lot of renewable developers that are stranded. They've got you know great projects lined up, interconnect agreements, land purchase agreements, and the market they thought they were going to sell those projects to went away. They think they'll eventually sell them, but they need debt. And we want to be a senior lender because we, can, we think we can get attractive terms and collateral that we think is great, but banks don't understand. Right. And that ability to provide that insight, number one. Number two is sweat. Right. At the end of the day, one of the most renewable resources, pun modestly intended, on uh, investing in these assets is if you can put in the work. That's a sustainable way to have advantage. I, I think about middle market solar in the US. You know, we had a set of folks that saw a real opportunity. Lots of small developers needed capital. Corporates and others wanted solar on their roofs but they wanted someone they know would be around in 20 years to take care of it. And so we saw an interesting opportunity, people who needed capital and a customer base that wanted a stable counterparty. However, to do that, take some work. So we built a 40-person team, hired the former head of you know solar operations from Sun Edison, go out and do the work, right? And, and, and so putting kind of that sweat. And then finally is creativity, right? And I think, once again, sometimes in these spaces, the best deals are made, and not found. And I'm thinking, you know, one of, one of the things we've learned is the power of, you know, declining cost curves, more volume lowers the cost, but gets more volume. Uh, and that virtuous cycle, that's why we're constantly beating optimistic projections on things like solar and wind. Well, we're trying to go further in that cycle in battery storage, but you can't build a small battery factory, right? Because if it's a small battery factory, the unit costs are too high, so no one wants to buy it. But here's the trick, you know, how do you get $2 billion plus of financing to a company that's not going to have revenue until 2023? You know, we worked with a, a battery company called Northvolt in Sweden. What we did is you can do that if you get $13 billion worth of purchase orders lined up, in this case from Volkswagen and BMW. So that creativity, so you can make not find deals. And I think we see similar things in public markets, better ways to use data analytics, because, you know, the good news is as has matured, it's harder to find edge right? These markets get understood and get capitalized faster than it used to be before ESG and impact investing were in vogue. So it means, I think, back to what, what's next. I think investors need to be ready to have cleared the underbrush, have the thesis, and really do the work to be able to still find edge, still find value, and still make good investments against that backdrop. John, let's talk about financial markets themselves and how they might evolve in the future to better support this style of investing. It seems to me we need metrics, we need ways of telling whether or not what we're investing in is really performing in terms of the ESG metrics and ESG priorities that we've been discussing. What does this mean and how could the market systems themselves be designed to support this better? So I think it's a great question, and it's one that, that I think we're seeing, you know, it's been percolating up in the last few years in some markets, you know, think all the work that the EU has done. We've seen a lot of interesting emerging efforts in Asia. And, and now with the change of administration in Washington, it, it's much more front and center in the variety of regulatory and market-related bodies in the States. Look, I, I think there are a couple of key things to this. And look, this is a market phenomenon, which means that markets are going to be an essential piece of this puzzle. So I think number one, and we talked about earlier, data. You know, the lifeblood of markets is really data. And I think better company reported data on material ESG data points, I think is absolutely critical for all market participants, for the creation of products, for reporting, for all the other thing markets really need to and can do. I mean, there's a reason, you know, we both as a company are a reporter using SASB and TCFD. Uh, we encourage clients to do the same. I think pushing towards a world where markets can function with better quality, comparable data on relevant things is, is, is critical, I think, number one. I think number two, one of the elements that's important across a wide variety of these issues is around carbon and environmental markets more broadly. As you see the world trying to make progress towards the goals of the Paris Accord, trying to reach important, uh, important targets to avert the worst impacts of climate change, at the end of the day, finding ways that carbon markets, both formal regulated markets, but also voluntary markets, can have scale 
can have legitimacy, efficiency, and effectiveness is, is going to be absolutely critical. If you look at the volume of corporate claims and corporate commitments in terms of decarbonization, current carbon markets are a fraction of the size required to meet those commitments and those claims in any fashion. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we participated in the IAF Task Force on Voluntary Carbon Markets that Mark Carney initiated. There's a reason we're highly engaged with a variety of exchanges, uh, as well as other players to figure out how do we take something that to date has really been a market with air quotes around it and remove the air quotes, right? We need a lot of these concepts where people talk about markets to actually be markets because that unlocks capital, it unlocks hedging, it unlocks financing, all of these things that are absolutely essential. And so I, I think, you know, the third is how can regulation support something at a stage of dynamism that this topic has. And what I mean by that is I think there's a, it's trying to find the Goldilocks spot because there's a version of this that gets too prescriptive too fast, right? That ultimately gets people where they're going to be solving for the regulation or solving for the label, which isn't a great outcome for markets. On the other hand, we do need things to slowly converge. And I think there are some things out like the IFRS process, which we think is, is quite interesting, like others, to, to have you know that right touch where you get enough of a push towards good data and standardization that markets can do their job really well, but not so much so that people really teach and solve to the test, really take labels that have been put down extremely prescriptively and solve for that. This is too dynamic. It's too unfolding. It's too multifaceted to put into too narrow of a box. And so that's both my, my hope and something we're watching very, very closely on, on, on this. Tell me a little bit more about how you envision this carbon market evolving, because it seems to me there are a lot of different facets to this. One side of it is the so-called carbon credits. You buy an offset credit, which is I basically polluted the atmosphere with X amount of carbon, so I need to buy a credit where someone else has saved that amount of carbon emission to make up for it. And there are both government mandated as well as voluntary versions of that. But how do I know what things I've done or what commodities I've bought, perhaps, which have resulted in exactly how much of that carbon pollution in the first place. So do we also need to have measurements when I buy, you know, a bushel of wheat that somehow there's a measure of how much the farm equipment polluted in the process of providing that bushel of wheat to me? Does that come into the equation at some point? Where is all this headed? So I think you're making a great, great point here, right? Which is, you know, as we think about the push for decarbonization, it's not just about carbon, right? It's ultimately realizing that things that we think of as commodities, which right now we have different grades of, of oil and a whole host of commodities. You know, in the same broad commodity, we have different grades of those. I think, you know, there's a reasonable chance we'll start seeing that in other commodities. I think it was BMW that came out with the first sort of car made with green aluminum. Right. We see folks trying to do that with things like green concrete. Your own investee, Northfold, is trying to make the greenest battery on Earth. This idea, and I'll talk about sort of carbon and offsets in a moment, but actually the embedded environmental attributes of different inputs that are used more broadly in the economy, that's going to be, I think, increasingly important as you have companies you know, up and down supply chains making and meeting these types of commitments. Because I think you're going to need you know, a way to document that some of the inputs into these processes can really dovetail into the commitments that are being made. So I think we see that certainly potentially in some metals. As an example, we see some people looking at it in terms of agriculture. You know, agriculture, which can, you know, have a negative carbon impact or can have a positive carbon impact. And so really understanding how we can have, you know, once again, there's probably a little Goldilocks here, which is if we have too many gradations with too many facets, nothing can coalesce into a market. But if we don't have some way to make that distinction, when you have large corporate buyers trying to organize supply chains around greener commodities, it's going to be hard to do that. And so I think, you know, it, your point is a perceptive one, which is, you know, some of these things are going to need to be catalyzed, facilitated, and enabled beyond carbon per se, but things that are embedded within other commodities, number one. Number two, as you talk about with carbon credits, either on, the, on a regulatory side or on the voluntary offset side, I think similarly, we're going to need some development and refinement there. Because if you think about those two pieces, right, lowering the footprint of your commodities, and just in general, this is the key first step for everyone who is making a lot of these commitments, is lower your own direct 
footprint as much as you can, both your own and within your supply chain. So for example, we've been you know carbon neutral since 2015, but have looked to continue to add that with things like business travel and other things, push up and down our supply chain. But I think you know your, your core products and services, and that's where some of these you know more certified green inputs may come in, things like that. And then what's left finding high quality ways to offset or sequester the, the carbon that remains that kind of delta, because for some businesses, there will be some residue, but making sure that the markets to meet those commitments of neutrality or net zero or net negative, get that sweet spot where there is enough authenticity, uh, enough ways to credentialize it, that it works in the marketplace, but that, that ultimately is light enough that it can scale and become a market, but serious enough that it has le- the legitimacy and the buy-in to do the job. John, let's go back to our role play scenario where I am a family office manager running a billion dollar family office. And all of a sudden, I've been told that my mandate is now to really focus on ESG. And this is something that's new to me. I'm an old school guy. I'm used to performance measured by sharp ratios and Sortino ratios and maximum drawdowns and so forth. I know how to think that way. And I have no idea how to do a credible job of incorporating an ESG mandate into my job as a capital allocator. Teach me in uh, the time we have available in a podcast, at least the, the high level overview of what I need to learn. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I think number one is own it as an investment question, not as a labeling question. Right. And I think this gets back to the, the, the T word we've used a lot today is, is, is thesis. You know, understand what is it you're looking for? What is it you're looking to try to do? And I think typically we see you know, some combination of three things that depending on the allocator they may be or may not be trying to do and almost have a paint by numbers investment policy statement people can use. Number one, back to where we started, right? The long history of values based investing. Some institutions that's important to. Right, faith-based clients. We have healthcare systems that screen out tobacco. You know, people have a variety of views. And step one is understanding: are there things that just for values reasons you want to avoid or not? And if so, what are they, and how do you do it? And it's important to make that distinct from that second point, which is the world is changing. Drivers of risk and return are changing. You know, what's going to drive success and failure of businesses and investments, and and asset managers are changing. And having an ability to gain insight into discern quality and really manage for success in a changing world is key for all investors, whether they think they care about ESG or not. As we said earlier, everyone cares about risk-adjusted returns, and it's increasingly becoming clear, as a, as a colleague of mine said, like ESG partially, you can think of it as a hedge against manager complacency and laziness. The world is changing. Are they changing with it? And this gets to the thing we'll get to in a second of how do you assess that? Number three, some people have investment views. They look at these themes and they think they're going to accelerate faster than the market believes, right? I mean, we did this a few years ago. We had a private client that said, I think electrification of transport and decarbonization in general is going to go a lot faster than the market thinks. So I want to position a portfolio of private assets that are set up to benefit from that, right? And so, you know, came to us a few years ago with that. You know, some people have thematic views of the market that they want expressed. And so step one is start. Where are you on those three elements? Are there things that constitute values alignment we want to include? Yes, no. If yes, what are they? How do you do it? ESG integration, it's not a question of whether you do it. It's how do you do it well? And we'll get to that in a second. How do you truly get you know, that discernment, that insight into who's good at this versus who's good at labeling this? And number three, are there core investment beliefs you have that you think are different than the market that you want to capture to manage money? So that's step one is just what are you trying to do and how do you do it? In terms of implementation, you know, the, the, the screening, the values alignment in some ways is relatively straightforward. Figure out what it looks like. Understand the operational and financial implications of doing that. So, for example, you can figure out what's the tracking error budget you would need to incorporate exclusions into a passive portfolio, for example. How would that get implemented in different asset classes? And you figure out what you, what you want to do and what you don't want to do. ESG integration. You know, when you're delegating to external managers, the world has evolved a lot, right, which is, you know, now we're at the point where lots of people have invested heavily in being good at ESG investing. And some people have also invested heavily in marketing their ESG capabilities. And those two are not always the same. And so discerning between that is critical. And so what we really look for are five factors. Number one is firm ethos. At the end of the day, is there support from the top of the organization to look at this seriously as an important and central investment issue? If it's not taken seriously at the top, it's less likely to be taken seriously within the team. 
Number two, back to that T word thesis. Is there a clear investment thesis of where and how they think these factors are material to succeeding, not just in their asset class or their style, but really in their specific fund and investment strategy? Because of that, the answers should not all be the same. They should be different. They should be tailored to the, not just as I said, the asset class, the style, the strategy, the philosophy, but a coherent thesis that explains where and how this matters and where it doesn't. Number three, team and resources. Who's doing the work? What's their skill set? What's their experience? What are their capabilities? Four, process. How is that thesis fed through a team and a set of resources? How is that driven with a process that can drive performance that's likely to persist? And five, engagement. Uh, At the end of the day, if this is part of how you think you make money, it shouldn't just show up before you invest, but should show up afterwards. And whether that's in how you you manage a real estate asset that you own, whether it's how you vote your shares of a company whose stock you've purchased, or whether it's how you set operational KPIs for a private equity-backed company that you now own. Those are really the five things that we we look at at evaluating in in, in a report card of a manager. And just an anecdote of how, how different the labeling of that is. I mean, we were asked to do a portfolio health check of ESG capabilities for a large pension fund. And we did two of these calls back to back. And one of the managers sent us an email back. They said they were so excited for the call. They sent us six email attachments and all these awards they won. And the second manager sent us a very terse note. And it said, I believe this will be a brief conversation. So we get on the phone with the first manager and, uh, and someone starts talking. We said, you know, excuse me, what, what, what's, your, what's your role? And it was their head of sustainability. And we said, we'd really love to hear what the portfolio manager has to say about how she actually manages the book. And as she walked through her investment process, it, was, it pretty quickly became clear that all the things in the glossy literature weren't actually showing up in, in how investments were made and managed. Second manager, we got on the phone call, and the first 30 seconds were sort of tense, awkward, and very quiet. And I I took my big uh, notebook, I closed the lid, and I said, okay, I'm writing down in my notebook, you do not do ESG. What do you do? And as they started talking, you know, they had a very large concentrated set of positions in middle market European industrial companies. And what they explained is that those companies had often outdated manufacturing facilities and a little bit of CapEx to modernize them could make them much more efficient in terms of energy use, water use, and waste produced. And in addition, if you market and communicate those efficiency traits in retail and business markets in Northern Europe, you could, in some cases, command a small price premium, in other cases, defend your pricing power in the marketplace. And we said, you know, in our world, we might call that greening manufacturing companies. And they said, well, we don't. And I think it's really important to not look at the labels, not look at the nomenclature, but really look beneath the surface as you would with any other type of due diligence, right? Back to that point, firm ethos, leadership from the top, clear investment thesis, good team, good process, good engagement. For that last bucket in terms of thematic investing, it's really understand what are you looking for, right? What is that thesis? What, where do you want exposure to thematics in a way that's different than the market and figure out how best to do that? And I think this gets into you know, the, the prescription from earlier is do the homework, do the deep dive in the sectors. Find where you think those drivers of return and impact are really aligned with your view of the world. And then really figure out how best to express that, you know, ideally in that sweet spot where, you know, that Goldilocks zone where it's, it's been de-risked, it's matured enough, but it's not yet crowded, right? It's sort of grown to the maturity phase where you, if you're close to the market, you see it's been de-risked, but the rest of the market either hasn't appreciated it or hasn't figured out how to, how to invest behind it. Now let's change the scenario and imagine that I am the actual fund manager. I am offering a service. I'm good at it. It it might be thematic equities. Who knows what it is? But all of the sudden, I've been hit with this freight train saying, boy, John, I look around the world around me. If it doesn't have ESG on it, nobody wants to buy it. I've got to get ESG. And I don't want to be one of these guys that greenwashes my existing fund and just tells everybody what they want to hear. I want to learn to do this right. But frankly, this is not my skill set. How do I learn? What's my process as an existing money manager who already knows how to do whatever it is that I already know how to do, but I need to make it green. I need to make it ESG compliant. So, you know, I think one of the things in this, we talked a little bit about earlier about family offices trying to get into this game. You know, I, I think step one is, is really level set, right? What are we talking about? Clear a lot of the labels, misperceptions, because people do have a lot of misperceptions about what this is, what this isn't. So before you before you try to do something, you got to know what you're trying to do. 
right? And, and also what you're not trying to do. So I think clear that underbrush because when people think they need to get better at ESG, sometimes they think it's about screening and values alignment. Sometimes they think it's integrating ESG into a core investment strategy. And sometimes they think it's taking more active thematic bets, right? And so be clear around what that is, number one. Number two, often once you clear the jargon out of the way, what you'll find is you can make more connections between what people have done in this discipline than they even knew that they had, right? That example of the, the greening manufacturing, right? Finding, you know, I, I rarely will find smart, thoughtful, active fund managers that if you strip it to some degree is almost the ideological language out of it. Don't do more of this than they understand or will readily acknowledge. Finding that bridge is really important because if people think this is learning a foreign language, it's daunting. It leads them to actually lean back from their core skill set. On the other hand, if people think it's you know a complement to the language that they speak, they can engage a little more fully. So I'll give an example of this. I mean, they're talking to a couple of very large active management shops. You know, they've gone through an evolution where you know step one, they looked at a lot of external research and data, but then what they did is they used that to fuel their own analysts. You know, one one shop got anyone that touches a sector into a room with each other and they laid out forward-looking roadmaps and they, you know, they got input from things like SASB from some, you know, there's some good sell side research on this stuff. A lot of asset owners and allocators will talk about their work, use those as fodder, but then use their own analysts to say, look, we know a little bit about these sectors. We know a little bit about companies and how they're unfolding. This can feed our process, but not replace our process. Because I think, if, if this is not sufficiently anchored to what people know how to do as a day job, it's problematic. I think this is the same thing in terms of how you structure it internally. People always ask us, do we integrate this with our core investing team or do we have a, a whole separate team? And I think what we often find is the answer is yes, right? We sort of like a both and approach where, you know, people are busy. So just telling the existing team to do more of this is asking a lot. But if you have a totally alternative silo that avoids the smartest investors in your building, that's also not a great example. So finding ways that you can leverage the resources you got, but complement them, I think tends to be really quite a useful way to, to, to lift this up and, and get this moving. I think the challenge now has actually evolved a little bit, which is we talked about regulation and policy earlier. I think you know I, I talked to the CEO of a large asset manager the other day. The thing they're wrestling with is, once they have that core, that core thesis, that view, that grounding, once they start engaging their people around it, how to not get pulled off from that gravitational core by what are client-specific, market-specific, you know, there are an increasing volume of different asks. And I think the thing that I, I encourage asset managers to keep in mind is some of those just, you know, are de facto things you're going to have to pay attention to. Some are, you know, domicile-specific regulations. Some maybe things that are important to specific clients. But it's important to know that that's what you're doing and to stay anchored in your core. Because if you lose track of a core thesis, if you lose track of a core way you think about where this is relevant to managing your money and all you're doing is being in reactive mode, you kind of lose the thread, right? Own a core view, and then you can adapt and, and deal with the things outside of that you need without losing kind of the core thread of the plot. John, as we close, please tell us what services you offer both to capital allocators and to money managers. And uh, for people who are interested in those services, how can they contact you or your group at Goldman Sachs? Yeah, so look, I feel remarkably lucky in the structure and nature of my job, right? I get to be a walking focus group of best practices and best pain points around the world on this topic. And, you know, we did the math. My, my, my team and I did a thousand client conversations last year. And what that means, we talk to companies as they wrestle with this. They get lots of asks from lots of different investors. How do they navigate this smartly and strategically? How do they think about raising capital? How do they think about their forward-looking strategy? Talk to asset managers, you know, the conversation we just had, how do you design your process? How do you create new products? How do you communicate all that to the marketplace? And allocators that are looking at everything from setting an investment policy all the way down to implementation. And so at the end of the day, my job is to mobilize the full range of resources we have as a firm. So really, if you fall into those buckets and you find you're stuck, you're interested in wanting help, please reach out because to some degree, we realize that clients have a variety of needs on this front that don't necessarily neatly map to our particular divisional structures. 
you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is being one Goldman Sachs. And that's, that's a large part of our job is to really make it so when clients have questions on this, there's one place they can get connected with the best of our thinking and practice around this. So broadly speaking, if you're a, if you're a company, an asset manager, an allocator at various stages of your journey, and you're looking to get started, or you're well advanced, but you have a new problem you're trying to solve, uh, could be broadly could be around topics like decarbonization, reach out. And so the couple of easiest ways to find me, my email is john.goldstein at gs.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Back from the early days of Improved Capital, I am at Impact Investor on Twitter. John, thanks so much for a terrific interview. One of the most prescient statements we've heard on Smarter Markets to date was when Goldman Sachs Commodities Chief Jeffrey Curry told us the single greatest challenge for ESG will be putting a price on carbon. So my guest next week will be a man who's doing exactly that. Bill Pezos is co-founder and COO of Air Carbon Exchange, and his business is bringing the systems of commodity trading to the carbon credit markets. We'll discuss the history of carbon trading, the challenges the industry presently faces, and what the future holds. That's coming up next week on Smarter Markets. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests on the caliber that you've heard here on Smarter Markets. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via word of mouth. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.